0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. Anxiety is a huge issue these days, getting worse uh, for a variety of reasons, including technology, social media, uh, especially among young people. And our guest this week, uh, you know, we, we've talked about anxiety on the show before, but our guest this week has a really interesting uh, approach the, to the issue. He's not a sufferer per se, but he is a neuroscientist, a really prestigious neuroscientist who has developed uh, a new way to treat it through an app called Unwinding Anxiety. His name is Jud Brewer or Dr. Judson Brewer, if you want to be all formal about it. He's a friend of mine. Uh, I wrote about him in uh, my first book, and we've been friends ever since. He's actually somebody who's really influenced the way I think about the science around meditation and meditation itself. He, he not only is a highly accomplished scientist, but is somebody who's been meditating for many, many years and very, very serious about that as well. So uh, we're going to talk to Judd. He's got a lot to say. and It's all very interesting. We'll talk to Judd coming up. Uh, first, though, let's do your voicemails. Here's number one.
1: Hi, my name is Belinda, and I'm from Chicago, and my question is around how do you get the to-do list and plans that you have for the day to stop running through your head in the morning when you try to meditate in the morning? That's, I think, a good... I'm trying to get set up into that practice, but um, continually my mind then just programmed that way to kind of start running into, this is what I want to do today, this is my to-do list, this is what I'm going to do, to here's my plan. And I can't put that on pause and it keeps jumping in when I try to meditate first thing in the morning. So I wondered if you had any good tips or tricks on how to pause that just to try to kind of get through the meditation and do the meditation in the morning and kind of stop that to-do list kind of just jumping at you first thing in the morning. Thanks.
0: Totally normal. It happens to me Even when I'm not meditating in the morning, anytime I'm meditating or anytime I'm trying to focus on anything at all, um, I have this you know background static of thinking about all the stuff that I need to get done that I haven't done or I haven't done well enough, blah blah, blah all the time. But specifically in terms of meditation, I'll tell you what I do. The first thing is I think trying to pause it or stop it is a fool's errand. To the extent that we understand the mind and the brain, you know, I think we know that we, we don't know where thoughts come from. you know, they come out of a void. It's the, the mystery of consciousness, which is one of the most interesting mysteries in a universe that is filled with them. But this you know, again, the mystery of consciousness is we know that we know stuff. In other words, we know uh, that we can hear things, see things, um, that ideas can be, uh, can come into our mind, but we don't know what is knowing it. We don't know – there's no little you inside your, in, inside your head uh, thinking these thoughts or receiving uh, all the audio in your environment and the visuals and all that stuff. So it's a really interesting question. Anyway, I'm getting a little uh, highfalutin on you. To get to the the, the the specific question you asked me, how I approach it is not trying to fight it or stop it but actually I think counterintuitively welcome it in. You know, as we know in meditation, it's a series of humiliations where you're sitting there trying to do this seemingly simple thing where you're focusing on the feeling of your breath, coming in and going out, and then you just get you get distracted over and over and over and over. And if it wasn't your to-do list, it would be something else because that's the way the mind is. Uh, the mind, as my friend Jeff Warren likes to say, secretes thoughts the way the stomach uh, secretes enzymes. You know, it is just its job to think you can't – It's Um, I understand why we do this, but it's a little silly in the end to expect the mind to stop thinking. And so, and yet when we get distracted, we tend to beat ourselves up. So I, I do this thing that the aforementioned Jeff Warren, who's a a really fantastic meditation teacher with whom I wrote a book recently, he he actually said to me, you know, notice that there are five, six neurotic programs that are, you know, sort of inner characters that keep popping up in your head. For me, one of them is just kind of an angry guy. Another is a planner, which is germane to what you brought up, you know, the sort of the planner, the logistician who's always thinking about the to-do list. There's another voice in there that I've noticed that always comes up that is super ambitious and a few more. And and Jeff's advice was give each of these characters who are regular players in your inner – uh, dramas, a name, and when you notice them stepping onto the stage, be like, "Hey, what's up?" You know, in my case, I call the the planner planning voice Julie, uh, like uh, Julie the cruise director from the Love Boat. I'm dating myself here, and be like, "Hey, what's up, Julie? Welcome to the party." Uh, so that way, you're not fighting against something that you're never going to win. You're not starting a fight. You're never going to win. You're kind of just welcoming whatever's happening to the party in your mind, and then you go back to the breath. Over and over and over again, rather than trying to push it away or beat yourself up for the fact that those thoughts are coming, just being cool with the fact that they're going to come no matter what. And the only sane, workable, scalable strategy in the face of this torrent is to be cool about it, to be friendly to these characters. And I think over time, at least the theory is, and I've seen this work a little bit in my life, that when you stop fighting or feeding, uh, these neurotic, habitual tapes that we run. Actually, over time, they can diminish in their power. So try that, and then call me back if it doesn't work, and uh, let me have it. All right, here's voicemail number two.
2: Hey, Dan, my name is Bob Mills. I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I, um, I just want to thank you, first off, for your app and for your book. Uh, they've been truly life-changing for me. I, I've tried some other mindfulness apps and I really feel that 10% Happier has the, both the substance and the variety that I needed to, to sort of get into my habit and answer the questions that I, that I needed answered. Um, my question is this. I've always been a guy who likes to have a good time and, and my severe FOMO uh, has perhaps led me to drink more than, uh, some occasions than I should, um, like last night. Uh, it's not. It doesn't drastically affect my work life, but the days after, I'm super hard on myself. Lots of judgment and anxiety, uh, and then I try to get up in the morning and run it off. But uh, but it's hard at times. Like definitely harder at times than others. Uh, in your experience, how critical is kicking the booze and and drug habit, which I don't have, but uh, in creating more mindfulness in one's life? Can you have both, or does one come without the other? I'd love your thoughts. Thanks again. Appreciate everything you're doing.
0: Such a good question um so fomo for those who don't know what it is is a fear of missing out, and what I take from your question is that you so badly fear missing out that you go out a lot and then end up drinking a lot and while it's not you know derailing your life, you don't feel that great the next day and it leads to some self recrimination et cetera et cetera so i you 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 said thankfully for me uh In your experience, in other words, you asked me to answer from my experience because I don't want to answer from, you know, the top of Mount Olympus. But I'll just tell you how I deal with this, Uh, specifically as it comes to drinking and drugs. So I I stopped doing drugs in the mid 2000s because I had a a panic attack, too, actually, on national television, which was pretty inconvenient. Um, And it was fueled by the fact that I was artificially raising the level of adrenaline in my brain because uh, I was using cocaine. And uh, so I really had to stop that. Uh, I stopped drinking because actually just the drinking just didn't agree with me anymore. So I I didn't ever really have a drinking problem. So I don't really do either of those things. But I do have a really powerfully addictive personality and have had to give some things up because I just noticed that I I was – I was just thinking about it too much and also just consuming. Well, in, per, in particular, I'm talking about sugar. So for me, sugar became a huge focus um, where I did, you know, I had kicked a lot of my vices, but I really was into dessert. But I was into it in a way that was just gross. And, I mean, I think I referenced in, in my most recent book that there was a night, true story, where I had so many Oreos that I woke up in the middle of the night and threw up. Um, So I would just way overdo it. It was not not a good look. And also because I'm kind of – my constitution isn't so strong, even if I just had a moderate amount of dessert, I would feel ill all of the next day. So this is where it becomes relevant to your issue. So, again, different substances. In my case, it was sugar. In your case, it's having a few beers or whatever. But it was the next day where I would feel awful, and it sounds like you too are feeling awful – and so I had to, I just basically about 13, 14 months ago said, I'm done. I'm not having sugar anymore. Uh, I was inspired by my friend Gretchen Rubin, who uh, is the author of The Happiness Project and has been on this podcast a couple of times, has her own podcast. She's a really uh, a good friend and just somebody who I uh, admire. And she had told me Years prior, that she had quit sugar because she just noticed that it was just producing this boring dialogue, uh, where she would wake up in the morning and be like, "I wonder, am I going to have any sugar today? How much am I going to have? Where's it going to be? Am I going to feel awful afterwards?" Blah, 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 over and over and and I know it, and that was what was happening for me. And it just took I had to suffer a little bit more <laughs> before I was ready to actually do what I needed to do, which was just give give up sugar because it was causing me more trouble than it's worth. And so yeah, I you know on. I I get some cravings on birthdays or when I'm you know out to dinner with friends and everybody's having dessert, but I just know look I, I I'm I'm not a guy who eats sugar anymore. That's just the deal, and because I can't handle it, just the same way I can't do cocaine. You know, like I I they have similar effect on me. Obviously, cocaine is way more dangerous, um, although sugar is pretty damn dangerous too, um, and. So, you know, my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, says this thing that I find really interesting, which is that the term renunciation is not a popular term in our culture. We don't – it doesn't have positive overtones. But if you reframe it as non-addiction, it actually starts to feel better. And so I'm not saying, hey, you should never drink again. Um, The winters are long up in Halifax, I'm sure. But you might want to consider – a certain degree of renunciation or non-addiction. Because, you know, if you're really serious about your meditation practice, those days afterwards, you know, it's tough. I found the days when I was in a sugar coma, I might, I, you know, I was falling asleep or just completely fuzzed out in my meditation practice. So I, I, I'm, I'm not going to give you a specific prescription. You know, you should only drink once a quarter or once a week or whatever. That's That's totally for you to play with. But I just give you this concept of this sort of renunciation light uh, that Joseph talks about because I found it really meaningful getting to a place of not being as addicted uh, and thinking about it in that uh, way has has been really useful for me. So good luck with this. Play with it. Give yourself a break. Know that you're gonna mess up, and 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 you're just gonna have to experiment, just the way I did with sugar for so many years. Even after Gretchen told me I should probably quit, I just played with it and played with it and suffered and all that stuff until I got to a point where I figured it out for myself. All right, good luck to you. Our next guest, actually, it turns out, is is uh, an expert in addiction. Uh, he's an expert in a lot of things. Uh, Doctor Judson Brewer is uh, a longtime meditator, also a student of the aforementioned. Joseph Goldstein, and uh, he is now the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center, which is in Massachusetts. He's also an Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. He's uh, uh, also affiliated with MIT. He used to be affiliated with Yale. You get the picture. Uh, He's uh, a pretty serious dude. Um, He has developed and he's been on the podcast before talking about his app-based treatments uh, for things like smoking and emotional eating. In fact, he teaches a course on the 10% Happier app about uh, mindful eating. So He's really good about issues related to addiction, but now he's moving into anxiety and he has a new app called Unwinding Anxiety. uh, And he's got lots of interesting thoughts about using meditation to deal with anxiety. So here he is, Dr. Jed Brewer. So this is a new app you've got? Yeah. What's it called? Unwinding Anxiety. I like that. So how's it work? What's the deal?
3: Well, it starts by helping people really understand how their minds work, which is something that most of us don't really have a good sense for. And so we we really train them to start to notice uh, how our minds work, especially in habit mode. So so you're
0: saying this is the kind of the new, I mean, there's a lot new to this, but one of the new angles is that that anxiety is a habit.
3: Yeah, it might seem paradoxical or ironic or even nonsensical, but really it is when we look at it, and especially the, the loops that we get into around worry,
0: for example. How, how does that work? Walk me through? I mean, I know how it works because I'm, I'm in the loop all the time, but, but more interesting to hear you talk than me.
3: So let's use a simple example. So for example, if we feel a little anxious, uh, for some of us that are stress eaters, we might you know eat the proverbial Oreo and then yes. feel a little bit better. So there's, you know, that's how we start to generate habit loops, say, around eating based on anxiety or stress eating. So now what about worry thinking? So, for example, uh, let's say your mind, maybe you're good at solving problems. And so anxiety comes up and then your mind says, you know, I've got a great idea. I'm going to solve this. And so it starts going into planning or thinking or fixing mode. So sometimes fixing mode works, like we can come up with a solution, but what would you say would be the percentage of time for you or for people that you know that get really anxious that that, that thinking mode actually fixes the problem?
0: Well, I can only speak for myself. But um, the more mindfulness I have, the more self-awareness I have, the more I realize that most of my worrying is useless.
3: Yes. So that we'll get to that in a second. But for folks that don't have that practice, for example, the worry thinking comes in and it says, I'm going to fix this. And sometimes it does fix it. So we even get this intermittent reinforcement process. Right, that's the
2: problem, right? Yeah,
3: yep, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it comes in as a way to uh, most of my, the folks that use our program talk about feeling like, oh, worry helps me feel like I'm in control, for example, or it's uh, the research has actually shown that it functions as a distraction mechanism. So it, it feels better to worry than to have whatever the unpleasant emotion was that was anxiety or fear or whatever in itself. But that when that worry starts spiraling on itself, it becomes so unpleasant that it it's doesn't work as a control strategy because we realize, oh, we don't actually have control over these things. And then it starts to uh, feed on itself because it becomes that unpleasant emotion that it was trying to fix in the first place. And so we spiral out of control or tighten down into this tiny little ball of anxiety based on, you know, anxiety triggering, worry triggering, more anxiety triggering, more
0: worry thinking, and it just spins out of control. Let's just step back for a second. What, How would, how do you define, you as a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, how do you define anxiety? I think of it as, uh, you know, kind of worry of the future. Excessive worry about the future. Yeah. And how do you de- draw the line? Because I think a lot of us would describe ourselves as anxious. I mean, it's a, it's a very common word now, almost like the way people describe themselves as Add, but it's, all, it's almost 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 flippantly used, and I don't know if people are being precise.
3: Yeah, and I don't know how precise we need to be. I, I look at it as, well, are we suffering because of the anxiety or not? And so, I it's probably more of a spectrum, like you're pointing out. And so, there, you know, if we, if I put on my psychiatrist at, there's generalized anxiety disorder, there's panic disorder, and these all have criteria that folks have to meet. But the bottom line is, if we're feeling anxious. <laughs> How much is that causing problems for us?
0: So if people who want to use your app, it's not like they need to have a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. It's just like, are you suffering because of your anxiety? Yes. But the the interesting part of it is if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have told you my anxiety is what makes me – whatever success I've achieved is because I'm anxious, right? So that's – and you you said it before, the worry thinking – works sometimes. So we get into a story about how like, yeah, it sucks to be anxious all the time. But like, if I wasn't anxious all the time, I'd be living under a bridge.
3: Yeah, this is so common that I wrote a specific module about this. So, you know, some people describe it as performance anxiety, or I need to be anxious in order to have drive. Uh, my PhD thesis advisor, Lou Muglia, talked about, used to talk about um, true, true and unrelated. So we might be anxious. My mom talks about that,
0: actually. Oh, really? It's yes, okay. a lot.
3: So we might be anxious. And we might get something done, but it doesn't mean that there's a causal connection between anxiety mm-hmm. getting us mm-hmm. uh, to get things done. And in fact, you know, if you look at uh, the ultimate peak performance state flow, for example, completely anxiety-free, but I would say that's where folks are performing at their best. So there's some good evidence suggesting that anxiety might actually get in the way. We just think that it's helping.
0: Right. So it's it's we're actually succeeding despite our anxiety. The yes. good ideas are sneaking up through the – like sneaking up through the knots of worry – But actually, if you can lower the volume on the on the on the worry inner chatter, that actually more good ideas might be able to seep their way to the surface. Absolutely. And in that, anxiety is taking credit. (laughs) (laughs) This is diabolical. It is. It's all the function of the ego. I mean, right. The thinking mind. Yes. So so walk me through how we break this habit.
3: Well, it's helpful to know how our minds work. So one uh, useful tidbit is to see that our minds are uh, they're reinforcement learning machines, so they're looking, they're constantly comparing, looking for the BBO, the bigger better offer. So <laughs> I love you that. know, is it this chocolate or this chocolate that's better, and w- whichever one we it tastes better, then uh, our orbital frontal cortex updates that and says, "Eat that chocolate," you know, eat the one that tastes better. So if we can start to see two things, one is how much anxiety is not serving us, that it's actually painful in itself. That helps diminish the value of the anxiety itself. So we're less excited to be anxious or spiral out into worry in the first place. You even said this earlier. You said, oh, the more I look at anxiety, the less I see that I get anything from it. Well, for a lot of us, especially the performance anxiety folks, et cetera, they have to really see that clearly before they're going to be convinced and not convinced on a rational level, but their brain on a very deep level is like, wow, this isn't helping me. So that's one step. But the other place that we need to do is find – Something that's a relative reward. So, uh, for example, you know, what does it feel like when you're anxious? We've talked about a contraction versus expansion. That feeling of anxiety—would you say anxiety is contracting or expanding? It's like a horse blinders. <laughs> yes, horse blinders. So it's it's narrowing. It's limited. There's restlessness. There's um, you know this dis-ease that comes
0: with it. It's narcissistic of. <laughs> exactly. At least in my case. Yeah.
3: So that's one piece. We can start to see, well, what feels better than this? So, for example, joy, curiosity, kindness. And as we start to see, oh, those actually feel better, our brain says, ooh, I want, I want some of that. And so it starts to not only see the relative diminished value of the anxiety itself, but it also starts to see the relative reward that comes from kindness, for example. Well, but,
0: but the anxious part of my brain is saying, if I have a problem at work, and I like somehow trick my brain into getting joyous, that's not going to solve the problem. I need to actually have my mind on the problem in order to solve it. Right,
3: but you don't need to be anxious while you have your mind on the problem. So you can start there and you say, oh, do I need to be anxious to solve this problem? And then you can look at times when you solved the problem and you were anxious versus times when you weren't anxious and solved the problem and see which one's actually more efficient.
0: And how does the app help you do that?
3: Uh, It walks us through, you know, the first step is, starting to recognize when we're stuck in that habit loop around anxiety. So the triggers, the worry thinking and all of that. So I think of this as – we even use this three-gear analogy. So if you think of driving a car, you have to get into first gear to get that car moving. So that first gear is just recognizing any aspect of that habit loop. The second gear aspect is somewhat – Uh, paradoxical, where we really help people see very clearly, what am I getting from this? And so that's the piece that you talked about earlier. Oh, this anxiety is not serving me. That's where that relative reward, quote unquote, of anxiety starts to diminish. Then we move into third gear when we're less excited to be anxious in the first place. Our brain starts looking for other things to do like, oh, let's just not be anxious when we're working on this problem or let's be kind or let's practice, you know, really being in the moment. So we can bring in specific mindfulness practices. So for example, breathing into anxiety or uh, using noting practice as a way to note what anxiety feels like. So we're stepping out of the process itself. And that's that's third gear.
0: So break down those two, the breathing in to anxiety and using noting practice. Because for people listening who may not have a deep meditation practice or may not have meditated at all, mm-hmm. can you just give us the blocking and tackling on that
3: yeah it's pretty simple we can just do this together so think of a time recently
0: when you were anxious Oh, i'm sure like 10 minutes ago okay um so notice where you feel it in your body okay so yeah i had a meeting with my boss uh, um, uh, an hour ago uh, one of my bosses um, and actually he was it was great meeting he was super nice but i was just a little anxious because there were a lot of things i wanted to cover and And I didn't know, I had some ideas that I wanted him to say yes to, and I wasn't sure if he was going to say yes. So I would say definitely where I feel in my body is a tightening in my chest.
3: Okay, great. And that's a pretty common one. There's some good research showing that the chest is one of the main areas where we feel it. So what you can do is just uh, simply, uh, on your next in-breath, breathe into that feeling of anxiety right there and kind of hold it with a kind, curious awareness, kind of like a mother holding her child. In right. the
0: meeting, I do this? So is it not going to look a little weird?
3: No, you can, we can do this here right, okay, now. right now. Okay, right um, now. But it's still going to look weird. Well, you still have to breathe, so they might not know <laughs> that, you're, <laughs> that you're actually holding it. In so it's not brain. like a deep breath? No, no, you're just breathing as you breathe in. You just breathe into that feeling and you get really kind of hold it in that in that awareness for a second, you know, as that in breath just holds itself. And then you can just let that breath go out. And sometimes you can feel a little bit of that release simply by having held it and then breathing out. And so we can do that a couple of times. It's very simple. We all have to breathe anyway. And it's very interesting because often when we're anxious, we notice that we're not
0: actually breathing. We're
3: holding our breath.
0: So what is the mechanism by which just – as you say, holding it in awareness releases it.
3: Well, I don't know neurobiologically what's going on there, but we do know experientially, and you can probably you know notice this from your own experience. Bringing awareness to something that's tight, uh, it seems it just kind of helps it loosen up on its own. It's like, oh, why would I hold this tightness in my chest? It's kind of hard and painful to do this. Oh, I'm just gonna let go.
0: Yes. That jives exactly with my experience. I don't know that I can rationally explain why that is. You don't need to. You don't need to. It's just the (laughs) beauty of it. Okay. So noting practice was the other thing you said as a a technique that can be used.
3: Yeah. So you could uh, go back to that sensation and you can simply, you know, and you could even do this out loud. Now note the physical sensations of what that anxiety feels like. So anxiety is a concept. If you had to break it down for me, how would you describe anxiety for me right now? What does it feel like?
0: I would say, well, so just based on my noting correctness, yeah, tightness. tightness. Mm-hmm. tightness. Mm-hmm. What else? Worry. Okay. What's thinking. worry? What does worry feel like in the body? Yeah, um, tightness, and then maybe a little gurgling in the stomach.
3: Perfect. So we'd just note those physical sensations. We'd note thinking, like we'd you, a little doing.
0: throbbing in the head.
3: There you go. And so we can bring awareness simply through these, this noting practice. So we'd note the physical sensations. We'd note thinking. Uh, we'd note anything that's arising. And it's really interesting because as we bring that kind, curious awareness to it, we start to see that these sensations aren't quite as, you know, as formed and as stable as we might think they are. You know, I have a lot of patients that wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm anxious, and they feel like they're going to be anxious all day. When they break it down, in any one moment, that anxiety is very much
0: in flux. So that's really – I don't want to let that pass. It's so important that when w- – one of the many benefits of mindfulness in many cases, but specifically in this case, is that you uh, notice that you're anxious and you immediately – your mind – this is the Buddhist word for this is prapancha. You you immediately create a mental movie of a whole day filled with anxiety where you're unable to function. But if you actually just zip into right now and investigate it with some curiosity and friendliness, you see that anxiety, as you're you know as you're experiencing it truly right now, is this whole circulating bullia of physical sensations and mental phenomena, and and then it all of a sudden doesn't seem so monolithic. Right, and it's more manageable.
3: Right, because in this moment, it's constantly changing, as compared to oh no, I'm going to have anxiety today, tomorrow, forever, the rest of my life, whatever. That's the papancha. I love that word because it sounds like we're galloping off into the future. Yes. Papancha, 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 <laughs> papancha, papancha.
0: It's one of my favorite words of all time. It's an uh, just for the uninitiated, it's a ancient Indian word from the Pali language, uh, the t- used at the time of the Buddha, and it means. I think it translates into the imperialistic tendency of mind so it's like the the mind is colonizing the whole future with a data point from the present moment um, which may or may not have any basis in reality yeah and yeah. so part of this seems to be seeing the difference seeing that your thoughts are just that thoughts mm-hmm. that they don't you don't have to take them the thought of I'm going to be anxious all day is if you can zoom back the camera just a little bit and see that's that's just a thought that is a huge victory absolutely.
3: So those are a couple of ways that this program – and there are many programs that teach these types of things. Um, but we link but the – yours is the best. I just <laughs> want to be clear about that. Absolutely. Uh, so, so how many days is the app? It's – we actually – we're not using the term days. We're using modules. Mm-hmm. And so there are 30 main modules that start off the program. And we use that because folks that are anxious tend to be anxious. <laughs> and so they think, oh, no, I have to do this within 30 days, for example – But if we've formed a habit around anxiety, that can be a lifelong thing that, you know, that can be really challenging to break in 30 days. So we really want to have people take it at their own pace. Every seven modules, there's a quiz that says, you know, have you gotten this, this, this? If not, go back and review these modules. And so we really want folks to be taking this, you know, and personalizing it, individualizing it in a way that will help them the most as compared to, great, I've got to do this in 30 days, go. And how much does it cost? Uh, it's about I should know this better. I think it's about thirty dollars a month or there's discounts for folks getting a six month subscription, et cetera. Okay,
0: so uh, you it's you don't yeah. just buy the modules and then you're done with it. actually, it's like an ongoing It's
3: thing. a yeah, it's a subscription and part of that is related to we have an online community that I moderate and we've trained people to help support folks in the community. Uh, we have a, a weekly live session via uh, web. You know, we Zoom as a way to do that. So folks can uh, join us from anywhere in the world and I'll moderate that session so they can have access and ask questions, et cetera. Like, wow. Yeah, well, that's so really it's, cool. It's something that you know we're trying to really have this be supportive and accessible. And so it, it's not just you know an app with a couple of modules.
0: What are the things you're hearing from your users that they're finding most useful?
3: Uh, where do I begin? I've – I would. I'll start with some of the things that have really blown me away. Uh, one was uh, a couple of folks have been describing how they're riding out full-blown panic attacks, things that they have, you know, panic disorder where they've had this for years and years and years, and they're actually able to ride out full-blown panic attacks. Well,
0: I mean, I find that extremely interesting. Although I'm a little skeptical, having been through many full-blown panic attacks myself. It doesn't seem, I've, I often joke, you can't hurl yourself into the lotus position when you're having a panic <laughs> attack. It's like- You can't,
3: but I think, and this is, I agree with you. I was, this is where it really stunned me because I was not expecting effects like this. But when you when you really understand how your mind works and you've really got these practices down pretty well, the noting practice, and in particular, the, one of the people I'm thinking of was using the noting practice. And she'd note, 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 note. And I'm going to tell you, My own personal experience with panic attacks, I started having them, I think, during residency when I was training to be a psychiatrist and I'd wake up in the middle of the night with a full-blown panic attack. And fortunately, I'd been practicing for a while at that point and I automatically would start noting. And (laughs) I remember at the end of these, I would note, oh – I would just go through the DSM criteria and check, 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 check. Oh, I just had a full-blown panic attack. But I noted it to the point where I was able to ride with it and be with it, where it just kind of – it came up full force, did its thing, and then stopped. And I probably had four, maybe five of those, and then I've never had one since then.
0: Wow. I mean but I think for me the panic attack only happened – well, there are two – think times when I get them, one is when I'm on live television, so it's like noting is a little hard to do when you're supposed to be talking too. Um, uh, the other would be when I'm claustrophobic.
3: Mm, yeah. So the
0: latter seems more workable, although I'm just so terrified that I, I can't do anything. And I've been meditating, you know, not forever, but like nine years, that's not nothing. And I just, I just feel like I'm no match for it.
3: Yeah, so I can't say I've had one on air, yeah. uh, and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Uh, I don't either. Having seen yours.
0: It helps not to do cocaine.
3: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But I think the other piece here to have a little bit of trust yourself in is that you know these practices really build up over time. And so the thing that I, I was really just really grateful for after having had these myself was that this practice just kicked in. Automatically on its yeah, own.
0: Yes, yeah, it's just like so interesting. I often liken it to um, times when I've interviewed uh, police officers or members of the military, and you ask them about a, about a stressful situation, and they always say, "My training kicked in," mm-hmm. and that's what we're doing in meditation. Exactly, and it can kick in like just when we need it. I want. I know we're we're gonna um, we're gonna talk about some of the we're in the middle of talking about some of the responses you're getting from users. I'm gonna call a tangent briefly because I just want to know: do, Are you an anxious person? Would you describe that as being something you wrestle with? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say
3: that my my mindfulness practice has been a lifesaver in that respect, uh, to be able to have it come up and not have it rule the day.
0: So, but it doesn't alleviate it. It doesn't mean you never get anxious. It's just that you catch it sooner.
3: You know, it's hard to say I'd have to clone myself and do the parallel experiment uh, now, especially, because it's, you know, there are times where it just, Pops up and then it's gone, pops up and then it's gone. There are times where it sticks around a bit longer and there are times, you know, when I'm not anxious at all and it's, it's hard to know, you know, what my new baseline is after having practiced for a couple of decades. Yeah.
0: So you don't find yourself a week into an anxiety jag and you're like, oh, oh, now the mindfulness is kicking in. No,
3: no, I, no. It's, uh, I would say on a daily basis, I can definitely consider myself not to have an- generalized anxiety disorder or anything to that extreme. Uh, and that,
0: in general, I I'm, I can't complain about my life. It's it's not bad. It's great. Um, okay, so back to things that you're hearing that are surprising you from users, or not. It doesn't necessarily have to be surprising, but what, the things that they're finding the most applicable to their to moment to moment lives.
3: So, besides things like you know panic attacks, uh, there's for a lot of folks where they just have this low grade, or even medium or high grade anxiety that's that's throughout the day. Uh, Just really understanding this habit loop around the worry and seeing that there is a way out. I'm thinking of – there was one of our pilot testers was so compelling. She wrote me an email uh, and said, you know, I feel like this anxiety, I am anxiety. It's deeply etched in my bones. And that was so compelling to me that I wrote uh, our module 29 actually about that to see where we become so identified with anxiety that we can't imagine ourselves without it. Mm. And in fact, uh, as people go through the program, they start to see they are not anxiety, just like they're not their thoughts. They are not anxiety. And that is a tremendous relief for them, just to know that.
0: Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from
1: your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here.
3: Literally, the ground was
1: shaking. I'm Brad Milkey. And every morning, we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight.
0: Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling.
1: All in 20 minutes. Start
0: here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. It, w- what does the science say about how good meditation is and mindfulness practices are for anxiety?
3: Some of the best evidence is around anxiety in particular. So, uh, some of the earliest and strongest and most robust data are around, for example, MBSR, mindfulness based stress reduction for anxiety. Uh, mindfulness based cognitive therapy has also been used for it as well. And so, these in person uh, trainings have been shown to be tremendously helpful ah uh, we've we have some pretty positive pilot data from our program uh, for your app. yeah, so we've we've embedded uh, validated measures right into the app so that we can folks can track their own progress also so they can bring their scores to their clinicians. I've, i can't tell you how many times I've had a patient walk into my office and I say, "What's your anxiety been like over the last month?" And they give me the blank stare. I'd love to be able to look and where say, "Oh, you've tracked this on a weekly basis. What, what was it like this? You've tracked this on a daily basis so they can not only identify their habit patterns, but also, I can see, are they making
0: progress? Are they not making progress? Where do we need to uh, tweak things a bit? So for somebody listening to this who may have, you know garden variety, anxiety, may not feel compelled to get the app yet. Uh, or may not have the money yet uh, for the app, what would you say is your general advice for uh, managing anxiety in our lives? You want to be honest advice? Yeah.
3: yeah. I. It really starts with really understanding how our minds work. I think that's what mindfulness training in general is about. And so, you know, a lot of meditation practices, a lot of noting practices to help us start to see the patterns that we've set up in our minds. We don't need an app for that. We can start to pay attention to that ourselves, and so, you know, I would say, uh, just like I talked about with first gear, just starting to recognize what our habit patterns are, what triggers anxiety for us, what is our go-to? Is it worry thinking? And then starting to dive into worry thinking and asking, what do I get from this? You know, not in in a thinking way, but really just seeing what the results of worry are. You know, we talk a lot in Buddhism about cause and effect. If worry is the cause, what's the effect of that? So we can start to see very clearly what those results are so our brain can really see, hey, what am I getting out of this?
0: I remember I was taking a walk with you once and you sort of describe. – I'm probably going to mangle this so you'll correct me – that the core of your approach because you work on – you bring mindfulness to all sorts of issues including mindless eating. Um, the core of your approach is seeing clearly. That if you can, te- you can teach a person to see their own mental processes clearly, they are not as owned by them, and that gives you the leg up.
3: I would even say that, that seeing clearly helps us hack into the very process that's setting up these unhealthy habit loops in the first place. So we can start to – if our you know, habitual behavior is worry, what if we replace that behavior with awareness – that does two things. One is it steps out of the worry cycle in itself, but that awareness helps us see how painful the worry is, and it also helps us start to see how, how sweet awareness itself
0: is. All right, I have a million questions based on that. Go. So just walk me through how, how that would work. I have enough self-awareness so that when I, I may notice that I'm caught in a little tangle of worry, and instead of my old habitual response, which is just, just feed it, feed it, feed it through more neurotic obsession, I actually just step back and bring some awareness to the fact that this is happening. And then what?
3: Well, I would even say – and one piece of that awareness is this attitudinal quality of curiosity. So curiosity keeps us – draws us in and says, oh, what is this? Curiosity in itself feels pretty good. So if we can tap into that capacity to be curiously aware, right there, we're not only stepping out of the process, but we're stepping into something that feels better than anxiety itself.
0: So, I mean, I've noted this about your approach before, which is that in some ways – you're, I mean, hedonistic may be the wrong word, but you're, you're trying – the brain wants things that are pleasant. Mm-hmm. And so you're always trying to tap into the reward system to help us break out of these habits that are actually causing us suffering.
3: If it's the strongest learning process that we have, why not use it? Right. What would you rather use? No,
0: no. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely a hedonist. Um, and so, yeah, I want to use the reward system of the brain to, to be able to – because I think it will. I just know for myself it will work. So ride that one. Rather than grit and willpower, which, yeah. as you've pointed out before, can evaporate pretty quickly.
3: Yes, yeah, unfortunately.
0: It, what do we know about the prevalence of anxiety in our culture now as opposed to, I don't know, 50 years ago?
3: I don't know historically, but I do know that it is the most prevalent uh, category of, of psychiatric disorders, if you want to look at disorders themselves. So the anxiety disorders are the most prevalent uh, on average, if I remember the numbers correctly, the prevalence, for example, of generalized anxiety disorder is about twenty percent in the population. There were some uh, New York Times. There was a New York Times article talking about uh, the prevalence in college students. And if you believe the data, they were uh, they were reporting greater than fifty percent of mm. college students meet some level of you know clinical grade anxiety. I can't imagine that college students fifty years ago. Were that anxious, but I don't know.
0: They seem pretty chill in Animal House. <laughs> so, what do you think's going on?
3: Well, I don't know because I wasn't alive 50 years ago. I can say that there is a lot of so. One thing we can look at the causes of anxiety. So, uh, this uncertainty is a killer for folks that are anxious. Just our minds are trying – they're prediction machines trying to make sense of the world and trying to predict the future. Mm -hmm. They're trying to create stability, trying to get control. The more instability there is – so for example, just use uh, political instability, for example. If we don't know what's going to happen day to day on the political sphere, that can cause anxiety for anybody that follows that piece. If we don't know what's going to happen day to day environmentally, a little less volatile than – the political sphere. But there's more uncertainty with the environment, for example, now that increases folks anxiety and we can apply this to any aspect of our life. So if we don't know if we're going to have a job tomorrow, that causes anxiety. If we don't know if we're going to – you know, if our relationship is on the rocks. Or if that we can pay off our student loans. Can, yeah, all of those things. So anything that increases the likelihood of of instability or unpredictability, that's going to uh, relate in, in – be proportional to anxiety.
0: What role, if any, do you think the proliferation of technology and social media play in anxiety, especially among young people?
3: Well, there are a couple of new pieces there that we haven't had before. So what is it, FOMO, the fear of missing out? Mm -hmm. So one is the, uh, the availability of information. We've never had access to information like we do now. And so there's this whole thing about, oh, if I don't know everything or if I'm not up to date there's this worry that we're you know that we're going to miss out on something. So that's one
0: piece of it. Or you're seeing pictures on Instagram of all of your buddies at a party that nobody invited you to. That doesn't
3: help either, right? And there's also uh, this you know we can talk about technology addiction. That wasn't around you know what, smartphone. The iPhone came out in 2007, so we've only had the ability of these. <laughs> I love the term the weapons of mass distraction. Yeah. We've only had that for a decade. And so that's completely new. It's burst onto the scene. You know, texting is now more addictive or more dangerous than drunk driving. You know, so we, we see all of this just completely swooping. in. I don't think anybody had idea, an idea about how massive this was going to be.
0: Do you have thoughts on how we can use mindfulness to manage our relationship to technology? You know, that uh that phrase from
3: Princess Leia comes to mind, help me Obi Wan, you're my only hope. <laughs> I really because these are these are being engineered on such a rapid scale to increase the addictive potential of these things, just as companies try to compete with each other to be more and more addictive. Uh there are a couple of you know, if you think about it, you can you know, large companies that have user bases of a billion or whatever can do a, a study in a single day where they have you know, sample sizes of a hundred thousand, where they can test A versus B, A versus, and they're doing this constantly. So, the rapidity with which this stuff gets iterated on is is mind-boggling. So, in, the only thing that I see that's going to help us be able to to work with that, this isn't about you know setting up government regulations or, or you know asking companies to uh, police themselves because this is their revenue stream. Generally, you know, for a lot of these, so. I would say the only way that we're going to be able to to be able to work with this is to really understand how our minds work and watch them, you know, watch our minds so we can see how we're getting sucked into this. And then we can use the same process that we were talking about with anxiety. We can start to see, oh, what do I get when I'm you know, addicted to my phone? I'm, I'm thinking of a, a specific example. There was a, a resident physician that I was um, that was working with me who was um, she was she woke up. One Saturday night, she was from a daydream basically, where she said that you know I was standing in the kitchen, my two kids were at the dining room table, and I was away from the table checking my newsfeed. And I woke up to the fact that I am completely disconnected from my kids, and that was such a wake up call for her to say, "Wow, look how how did I get here?" You know, like that was the the gutter, the proverbial gutter for her that was a big gut check where she really you know it motivated her to really change that that behavior herself simply by waking up to it. So we're talking about waking up seeing that process clearly it's it's the exact same for technology as it is with anxiety.
0: So it's not there's not some magical I mean Obi-Wan's not going to show up with a lightsaber basically you you just have to use the tools of mindfulness the sort of daily reps of learning how to see what's happening in your head so that you it doesn't own you and so for me i'll just say like i am checking my phone all the time Mm -hmm. but sometimes i notice why am i doing this like i'm not getting anything out of this i'm just doing it to do it why not just like put it away and um just be alive for a minute
3: so each time you wake up and to that that helps to help you become disenchanted with the process and then you get get more control and if you have control over your mind, you know where you through these awareness practices, then it doesn't matter what technology throws at you because your mind will know what to look
0: for. Disenchantment is such a great word. Can you just unpack it.
3: I would say uh, not being. You know, I think of Pepe Le Pew, the uh, the cartoon skunk who would you know float through the room at, at the scent of that uh, the female cat. You know, where it's like we're completely enamored and enchanted and under the spell. Of what you know, whether it's technology or or our minds or whatever, the disenchantment is simply uh, seeing that that scent
0: is actually rotten. Oh,
3: wow! Why you know this is what's drawing me in. This doesn't do it for me. Yeah,
0: so I'm stuck on Twitter for I'm in a Twitter hole for seven hours, um, and my you might wake up at some point, and notice you have a throbbing headache, your stomach's upset, you've eaten. St- Seven sleeves of Oreos, and uh, you—you're like, what am I getting out of this? Nothing but suffering. Right. Same for video games. Same for any
3: of these other uh, socially addictive things.
0: Important to note: th- used in moderation, all of these things are just fine.
3: Absolutely, I couldn't navigate Boston without my phone. I'm not saying <laughs> we should become luddites. The technology is only going to get more and more integrated. It's a matter of being able to use it responsibly.
0: Do you not think there's some some responsibility on the companies?
3: I think it's an individual choice ultimately. And so if the company executives decide that it's important – more important to help society than to uh, to make profits for their shareholders, then I imagine they'll make those choices right. themselves.
0: Maybe about whatever, whatever pressure is brought to bear on them. There, there's a complex calculus I'm sure. It's very complex. But in the end of the day, you don't want to have your happiness dependent upon the decisions made in a C-suite in Silicon Valley. You want to be – Taking responsibility for your own mind, and that, so that's in some ways, in many ways, if not in all ways, it's on you, the user.
3: Yes, and I would love everybody to take responsibility, whether it's us as the individual user and as as well as the C suite folks. I, I hope that everybody is thinking about this.
0: It's it's our my friend, my new friend Manusha Marodi. I don't know if you know her. She's a pod, an excellent podcast called "Note to Self," and um, it's about the relationship we have to technology she said and i'm going to mangle the quote that we're basically conducting a global science experiment right now with our minds and this technology and it's uncontrolled and nobody knows what the outcome is going to be yes it's really incredible to watch i was just on the train yesterday and i just took a look around and everybody's on their phone
3: absolutely i was hearing about uh college students my my wife's a college professor And, you know, they have these seminars and they take a bio break in the middle of the seminar. And instead of these college students actually talking to each other, they're all just instantly on their phones again. No social interaction with each other at all.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm sighing in part because, like, I know I do that, too. You know, Uh, I try not to do it that much, but um, I can't claim to be a.
3: Well, here's the nice part is when we wake up from this and we see the the, the joy, you know, that joie de vivre when we're actually connected with folks, that's really tasty. And so when we start doing that – Other people are going to say, wow, you know, what are you smoking? I want some of that. Yeah.
0: yeah. But I find that so often for me, the moment of waking up is just basically a moment of self-flagellation. Like, how could I have done this? I'm never going to be able to break out of this habit. So it seems to be something there's there are ways to wake up that are wise and unwise.
3: Yeah, so you can wake up and then start flagellating, self-flagellating, and then you can wake up to the self-flagellation and say, yes. "Oh, yeah," and then see how hilarious it is yes. that you're right. self-flagellating, and then you've popped that bubble as well.
0: But There, um, my friend Jeff says we're we're like we're walking around in a thousand nested trances, you know, and you just have to systematically wake up from them, you know, the best you can. Absolutely. Anything I should have asked you, but I didn't. No, this has been great. Let's do the plug zone. Say more about where we can get your app, um, more any, any where we can follow you on social media, where we can get any information about you or anything you care about. Give me everything.
3: Uh, it's unwindinganxiety.com. People can learn more about the app. Uh, my self-referential website is judsonbrewer.com that links to all, you know, our Unwinding Anxiety program, our Eat Right Now program for emotional and stress eating and
0: then – Which, right. by the way, we've talked about on this podcast before. So if you want to hear about that, which is super fascinating, you can go check it out. We have a whole course in the 10% Happier app that's kind of like a taste uh, – appetizer uh, of what you'd get if you did Eat Right Now. So, um, and But isn't, you also have a smoking cessation app?
3: Yeah, it's called Craving to Quit. Uh, so those are the three main apps. Craving just,
0: to Quit, Eat Right Now, Unwinding Anxiety.
3: Right. And the for the Eat Right Now program, it's goeatrightnow.com, but the others are just self-named.
0: And if I want to, but you can get the app in, in Google Play or in the Apple App Store, mm-hmm. too? Okay. Yeah,
3: yeah. And, uh, oh, I wrote a book
0: called The Craving Mind That's right. uh, that Great details book. all the science behind this. Great book. Um, okay. And you were on the podcast talking about that as I well. Um, how many times have you been on this podcast? This is the second. Only the second? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing something wrong. Uh, social media?
3: I'm not on social media very much. My Twitter handle is Judson Brewer, but I think I've tweeted like 36 times
0: ever. Okay. And you have a TED Talk?
3: I do. That one was seen a couple of times, yeah. it's
0: uh, On TED, I think it's a simple way to break a bad habit. Simple way to break a habit. A bad habit. Yeah. Um, Awesome. Did we get it all? We did. You're the man. You are. No. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Peace. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohen, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
1: I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest